Ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon. Thank you so very much for joining us today. My name is Eric Peterson. I'm Senior Vice President and Director of the Global Strategy Institute here at CSIS. I'd like to welcome you all to the latest in a series of lectures here at CSIS on the subject of smart power, that is, the uh, byproduct of a high-level group uh, commission that we uh, formed here at CSIS, co-chaired by CSIS trustees uh, Joseph Nye and Richard Armitage, whose final report entitled A Smarter, More Secure America is available on the center's website. Today, I have the pleasure of uh, introducing a speaker who uh, I believe to be at the cutting edge of a range of issues involved with ethical branding and broader issues of social entrepreneurship. Jonathan Greenblatt currently serves as senior advisor to the XPRIZE Foundation. Uh, you, of course, know about that foundation, which uh, recently announced the Google Lunar XPRIZE and the Automotive XPRIZE. Now, Jonathan is foc focusing, has been focusing his energies on breaking the cycle of global poverty and looking at a range of potential ways to address that, including some late-breaking news that I'm sure he'll want to be sharing with you. Now, if that were not enough, Jonathan is also teaching social entrepreneurship at the Anderson Graduate School of Management at UCLA. He is the co-founder, and I think many in this audience know him in this capacity, of Ethos Water, which he, together with his longtime friend Peter Toom, launched in 2002 to achieve a specific mission, let me quote, to create a brand of bottled water to help children around the world get clean water. In 2005, Starbucks acquired Ethos Water, and today Ethos Water is sold, as we've all seen as we go in for our caffeine fix every morning, in more than 6,000 Starbucks stores across North America. Now, uh, Jonathan is also a former vice president of Starbucks Coffee Company and an ex-member of the board of directors of the Starbucks Foundation. And in his foundation capacity, he was responsible for developing the global investment strategy for the broader philanthropic efforts at that company. Uh, Ethos, I should say, currently is projected to invest more than 10 million through the year 2010 to bring clean water to communities in need throughout Africa, Asia, and Latin America. Now, way back when, and I think a few of you might even remember him in this uh, incarnation, uh, Jonathan was a staffer in the Clinton White House where he addressed uh, a range of issues, not least of which is the role of the United Nations looking at global water and sanitation issues. He assisted the United Nations Foundation with the creation and launch of the Global Water Challenge, a coalition, as many of you know only too well, of Fortune 500 businesses, foundations, and non-governmental organizations. Uh, he's involved now in several corporate and nonprofit advisory boards, serves as a director of the African Leadership Foundation and Restore Products, He's involved in a number of other organizations and has received uh, several distinctions that I won't dwell on. Uh, we are very lucky to have uh, Jonathan with us today for what I'm sure is going to be an interesting, engaging presentation. Would you please join me, ladies and gentlemen, in welcoming Jonathan Greenblatt. Eric, thank you very much for that very kind and generous introduction. I appreciate it. It is really nice to be here at CSIS, an institution which, from my time here in Washington, I've had the chance to get to know a little bit 
and to be introduced by Eric, whose scholarship and work on the Seven Revolutions Project I have great respect for as well. I also should acknowledge some familiar faces in the audience. It's nice to see Ambassador Babbitt and Paul Faith from the Global Water Challenge and Mark Winter from the Millennium Water Alliance. And I know there are a number of other people here today who have been working on this issue of the global water and sanitation crisis. So I will defer to the experts, perhaps, during the Q&A when people ask me hard questions. But um, I will try to touch on that today and also talk about what I would describe as the economy of integrity and the phenomenon of social entrepreneurship that we're really seeing take hold all over the world, even here at home in the U.S. And I'll talk about that and use Ethos Water, the company that I co-founded, as a case study to give you a richer sense of what I mean. So basically, <clears throat> we'll start by talking about my values. And I, um, my parents came to this country after my grandfather fled Nazi Germany. That was him during the Holocaust. Um, he was an entrepreneur. So my idea of getting involved in entrepreneurship started very young. The idea was that no one in my family actually has worked for a large company, except for my time at Starbucks now. Um, we've always sort of made it on our own. And my grandfather inspired in me this idea that you could make a difference, that you could get involved in whatever you wanted in this country, have such opportunity, which is why when I graduated from college, interestingly enough, 16 years ago, kind of a similar time, presidential cycle. There was a Bush in the White House. There was a Clinton from Arkansas running for president. Um, I decided to go volunteer for this guy, which I did coming out of undergrad. So I waited tables in Harvard Square so I could subsidize this habit of volunteering for Governor Clinton. I ended up moving to Little Rock and working for him at his national headquarters. And then things turned out in a way that I never would have imagined. And I ended up coming here to DC. But it certainly imbued in me early on this ethos of public service, which has really been something that's been a big part of my life experience. What's interesting today is public service, I think, is coming to a point where it's converging with the private sector, and it's converging with civil society. And we're seeing the blending of what was once very separate spheres in a way which creates an entirely new context in which we're all operating, whether we're business people, whether we are public servants, whether we are activists, again, part of that third sector. I see a fusion of these spheres. And again, that's the kind of work that I think Eric has looked at in some of his studies. And I'll talk about that briefly today, because there are a set of trends that I think are driving this phenomenon. The first one of which is environmentalism. You know, there was a time when only a few on the fringe were really thinking about environmental or green issues. Today, the reality of climate change is upon us. Even the folks in Pennsylvania Avenue agree with that now. Um, it's really inevitable, and it's changing the way we think about our role in the world. Globalization, I mean, I have this image of, uh, of a McDonald's in Morocco on my, behind me, but I think a better image would be to pick up the Wall Street Journal this morning and read about Bear Stearns and read about the utter extraordinary collapse of a Wall Street titan and the effect that it had overnight on foreign markets. I mean, it's, the pace of change is remarkable and the reach of globalization is really quite dramatic where what happens on Wall Street matters as much in Tokyo or in Paris or in Dubai as it does here. And yet, as much progress as we've seen in development over the past 25 years, there is still a sense of the growing inequity and the divide between the have and the have-nots. And the trend of urbanization where more people today are living in urban centers than in rural environments for the first time in human history. And increasingly, we see those living in those urban environments, in the kind of slums that you see here in this picture of a flavella outside of Rio, 
and we see it in places like China or places like India where there is such great prosperity and yet there is still such despair. And one of the things that this helps to contribute to, I believe, is insecurity and a sense of anxiety about how the world is dealing with these forces, with this sense of the have and have nots and some of the phenomena that it spawns, like fundamentalism, which manifests even in places like downtown London where you think you're far removed from it. In a globalized, accelerated environment, these forces are directly upon us. Now, I think another thing that's contributing to a sense of unease is the rise of cynicism, where I think people have lost faith in our elected, lost a degree of faith in our elected leaders, in business people who are seen as pursuing private interests, even at the expense of civil liberty. This is the picture of uh, Jerry Yang testifying before Congress. He was the founder, and today is the CEO of Yahoo, and I think we're all familiar with some of those challenges are Ted Haggard, the religious leader who also experienced his share of issues. In fact, there's somebody more recently in the press who's getting attention in this way. But I think what this does is it creates a, a widespread sense of cynicism about the role of government and about the faith of the establishment and the faith of these leaders who work from a top-down point of view people are increasingly cynical about. And I think if we take these forces together, a sense of the need to deal with these global inequities, a desire to confront some of the sense of anxiety, and a growing cynicism, it contributes to this widespread, a widespread sense of, um, ooh, my slides are just flying by themselves, a desire for authenticity. And let me move back quickly. Technology is driving a lot of this. And I would say very quickly, technology is probably the force that's catalyzing so many of these trends and driving the acceleration. We see it in terms of affordability. Right now, the $100 laptop, it's gotten a great deal of criticism. But to think that there's more computing power in this $100 device than there was in the control room that sent a man to the moon just 30 short years ago. Everything today is transparent. There is no room to hide anything. And that environment, again, I think contributes to acceleration when everything can be found via a search engine. And lastly, there is a greater sense of connectedness than ever was before. How many of you are familiar with Twitter? This is the beltway. So if I, went to, if I asked this question in Silicon Valley, not only would everyone raise their hands, most people would be on Twitter. Imagine a service where you would sh send short messages, 25 words or less, and tell people where you are at any given time. I'm here at CSIS. I would punch into my iPhone or punch into my Blackberry. And it would be posted on a blog just like this so you could see what your friends are doing right now. It takes the idea of text messaging to another level because it's not one-to-one, -one, it's one-to-many. There are people who Twitter on a regular basis and people who follow them wherever they go. It's really quite remarkable. <laughs> you laugh. So you can all look at Twitter.com tonight. But imagine, again, a world in which everyone is followed and being followed. All of this, I think, contributes to a desire for something I would describe as authenticity. And whether or not you're a Barack fan sitting in this room, I think increasingly people are looking for answers, post-partisan answers, non-traditional answers, new leaders who can help fill the void and repair the breach that technology has accelerated and that these forces have come together to make clear. 
And one of the increasing areas where we're seeing this is in corporate behavior, where companies now feel they have to have a strategy to repair the breach. They have to attempt to, in an authentic way, create a different kind of value and deliver a different kind of value to their customers. Right? What's interesting, again, in a world in which everyone can blog and everything is transparent, if it is done in an inauthentic way, your audience will tell you. So the red campaign, which has gotten a lot of attention from the gap, has been followed up on the web by the buy less crap campaign. These are taken off the website, right? So if you respond in a way that the public feels is inauthentic, there's great pressure on you now. So companies are racing to deal with this new reality. And what was once known as CSR, it stands for Corporate Social Responsibility, in the past, many have found it's really just corporate spin and rhetoric. So let me provide a little context. There was a time when what it meant to be a meaningful member of a community on a corporate level meant sponsoring your Little League team or building libraries, as Andrew Carnegie did, or other types of investing in local communities to make those better places to work. The goal was, again, to be able to attract and retain great people, and also, to a certain extent, to generate good PR in the local environment. There was very little connection to the business at hand, right? So sponsoring a Little League team doesn't really have a lot with, you know, let's say running a cafe or a restaurant, other than maybe it's good PR and will bring you customers. What's happened of late is we've seen the growth of corporate spin and rhetoric, both reactive CSR that responds to a criticism or more strategic CSR that tries to claim the value chain has improved and therefore aren't we philanthropic and doing something better for the world. A great example of this in the bottled water space would be um, a company called Nestle Waters, which many of you may be familiar with. They produce Poland Springs, which I'm sure many of you drink, and they now have their eco bottle. You've all seen this, sort of shaped like this, and they claim they've done this because it's really a green strategy. Well, in fact, there's less plastic in the bottle. Right? So it makes it much more efficient and economically smart for them to ship these things because the number one cost driver in a bottle of water is that plastic and the weight of the case. So here they're doing something that I would describe as strategic CSR. They're saying, look, our value chain is better when, in fact, it's just the bottom line pursuit of profits. They weren't really mission-driven. And being mission-driven, starting with the idea of making a difference, not sort of retrofitting an existing supply chain, not reacting to criticism about, some would claim the Gap got a lot of flack for this because they were using sweatshop labor in some cases, but starting with the right intention. That is what I would say ethical brands are about. It's a new kind of business that doesn't happen by accident. They're driven by MBAs and they're driven by financial models, but embedded in the brand architecture, in the origins of the business, it is a desire to contribute in a constructive way to the community at large. This is a new phenomenon in business, and it's worth sort of noting. And we see it in a range of different companies. We see it in companies like Working Assets, a financial services provider that allows consumers to choose what nonprofit the company will direct a portion of its profits to. We see it in, oops, we see it in businesses like Method, which is a green household cleaning products company out of San Francisco doing really interesting stuff. We see it in the new Starbury sneaker, 
which is imagine this a high top basketball sneaker marketed at the urban market or the urban um, consumer base sold for less than twenty dollars right for generations that grew up on Nikes and other fancy shoes that got more and more expensive imagine creating a great product that kids can actually afford or now which is an interesting environmental oriented apparel company it has an interesting retail model where they don't ship inventory to the stores certainly makes more sense because the cost structure of maintaining a large physical plant is quite high in the inventory cost. Everything is just in made just in time. All these things contribute to what I would describe as the economy of integrity. A new class of businesses that again from their very inception are trying to drive both social good and financial return. And there are more examples. Living homes. Imagine a prefab house that looks as good as a as any sort of elegant design, and yet it's totally environmentally friendly. The Tesla is a car that many of you may have heard of. It's gotten a lot of hype. Imagine a pure, pure plug-in vehicle. So far more clean than the Toyota Prius, for example, but looks as good as a Porsche. Honest Tea, an interesting um, ethical beverage company. It's a, a ready-to-drink bottled uh, iced tea product that's made from organic inputs, that's healthy and not sweetened. And the Coca-Cola Corporation actually just took a large stake in the business. Or Lush, a company that spun out of the body shop. Again, very ethical um, personal care products. So there's a rash of these businesses, and I would describe them as ethical brands. They have five main characteristics. Number one, they start with mission. The founders aren't sitting in a cube trying to contrive based on some market research project. What's the way to iterate some existing packaged good. Instead, they start with a sense of mission. They're embedded with authenticity. They tend to have real roots, real people, real customers. They start small. They're most often bootstrapped because they can't go the typical route of finding investment because, again, they're trying to do something to change the world, which confuses venture capitalists and private equity people. Commitment is a very important aspect of it. So across the value chain, these businesses are trying to do something very meaningful, often at an expense that's unusual. Right? So they're bearing more costs up front because they believe they can make it back down the road, whether it's in financial return or the social dividend. Transparency is really important. Unlike the gap, which is an example that I mentioned before, which has been criticized widely for the red campaign because people don't understand where the money goes. Ethical brands are transparent from the start. There's a great window so you can see into those companies and you understand their processes. And those companies tend to also put forward a lot of information as well. And number five is engagement. With ethical brands, most often, their relationship doesn't end at the cash register. There's a much deeper level of participation these brands engender amongst their consumers. Whether they're blogging about them, whether they're participating in where the to decide where the money goes, there's whether they're engaging in physical su shows of support. Consumers aren't disengaged purchasers. They're engaged participants in ethical brands. So different companies will score differently against, this, uh, against these categories. But let me explain how Ethos Water scored against these categories. And we can use that as a case study for what I think is emblematic of this new breed of business. But before we get to that, let me explain briefly the context. And I'll go through this fairly quickly because of the audience. 
when I give this kind of talk outside of Washington, D.C., most people aren't really thinking that. Most people are focused on Twitter. That may be different here. But here, I think the numbers I'm going to describe don't surprise anyone in this room, right? 1.2 billion. I'm sure that's a number that most of you probably know. That's an estimate about the number of people who lack clean drinking water around the world. Now, Paul, is that number a little low? Or is that about right? That's what you keep hearing. 1.2 billion. Imagine 20% of the world's population lacks clean drinking water. One out of five people on this planet today. Imagine that upwards of two and a half billion people lack basic sanitation. This is pretty remarkable. This means no place to wash your hands, not a latrine where you can necessarily do your business. This probably means not even a sense of germ theory and the relationship between personal hygiene and human health. It's remarkable that 40% of the people on this earth don't have this most basic need. Now, I should say that the MDGs are doing great work, and there's a lot of marvelous nonprofits and a lot of marvelous initiatives to try to change this. But the fact of the matter is that still today, upwards of 5 million people die a year from water-related diseases. 5 million people. Water-related diseases are the leading cause of death among children under the age of five on this planet today. And we're not talking about you know, avian flu or HIV AIDS even, or some complicated and frightening pandemic. What are most of these kids dying from? Any guesses? Diarrhea, that's right. You know, I'm a dad with two small children at home under the age of five, and I don't believe in this time of such extraordinary abundance that we should allow or countenance the idea that children are dying from diarrhea, let alone in such numbers. It's just unacceptable. Women and children, particularly in rural sub-Saharan Africa, often walk up to six miles a day to retrieve water for their families. Now, I, I should actually paraphrase, or I should say that differently. They don't walk. This isn't like a leisurely stroll, you know, up K Street. These are women and children who most often get up at the crack of dawn. They're not wearing shoes, and they're journeying some distance to retrieve water oftentimes bearing their child in their arms, a bucket or a discarded chemical canister or a gourd, whatever they've got in which they can carry this water. Now they do that journey and they often travel in groups because it is incredibly unsafe for women to take this journey alone, particularly you know, in the, in the darkness of dawn. And when they get to that water source, if there's water there, they may be queuing up, waiting in line, or they may be coming to some open stream or some open water source that they're sharing with goats and with animals in which people are defecating or washing their children. And they're scooping this water up because this is the water that they will use, that they will give to their children. They will use for cooking and drinking, etc. This, this fetid water that none of you would find fit to consume. They do this every day. And when they retrieve that water in that gourd or in that bucket, and it weighs 20 or 30 pounds, they're putting it on their head or on their back and carrying it back to the village. I mean, this is, forget the 5 million lives as if you could. You can imagine the wasted productivity and the squandered energy and just the physical impact of this journey on these women. It is just 
It's abominable. It's really a problem. Now, what's interesting about this and what really gripped me was when you start to think about what the cost would be to change this, what it would take to provide an individual with a lifetime supply of clean water. Again, this is really the wrong audience to pose the question, so I won't, because you all know the answer already, or at least many of you do. But oftentimes people are just stunned when they learn that according to WaterAid, one of the best NGOs in the world working on these issues, the cost is about $25 US to provide someone with a lifetime supply of clean water and sanitation. Now this is a 15 country average looking at Sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia. It's more in some places like Central America. It's less in other places like let's say urban um, centers in, uh, in India. But imagine this as a benchmark, $25 to change somebody's life forever. When you start to understand the extent of the problem and you start to understand the opportunity that we have to address it, it's, it, it's just gripping and it's transformative and it was for me. It really was for me. Now I should say up front that ethos didn't start with me. It started with my friend, who Eric mentioned Peter Thum. We were classmates in business school and he contacted me when he had this idea. And he had looked at this problem having lived in South Africa and saw an opportunity because as big as this problem was, What's interesting is here in the U.S., the bottled water industry is today a $15 billion business. Now, I will tell you, I am grateful to the bottled water industry. It's given me a livelihood, and I've been very fortunate to be a part of it. But make no mistake, it is a fairly ir irrational product. Bottled water can cost, I've heard estimates, of up to 10,000 times the cost of this tap water. Frankly, we have an incredibly economic and environmentally efficient system. It's the public infrastructure, right? It brings us our tap water, some of the best water in the world. We're now, DC withstanding, I should say. <laughs> but we are very blessed in this country that we have this, and yet large multinational corporations have helped us to believe and to think that we need this. And boy, do we drink it. A how many of you have had bottled water over the last 24 hours? Raise your hand. Come on, put them up. Well, welcome. You are part of the 150 million Americans, half of the population who drank bottled water today or over the past 24 hours. Right? It is the fastest growing segment of the beverage industry and will soon eclipse carbonated soft drinks. So Coke and Pepsi basically will sell more water than they will fizzy things in cans in the very near future. Think about that. It's pretty remarkable for a business that really didn't even exist here 10, 20 years ago in any meaningful way. And at the same time, it is incredibly, incredibly inefficient, right? So I don't think I have to tell this audience about the waste generated from bottled water. Less than 12% of water bottles are actually recycled. So the vast majority are landfilled or discarded in some other way, often like this on the road. And I think there's nothing more ironic than looking at this plastic bottle that once housed water that f was shipped all the way from the French Alps. I mean, come on. Talk about it environmentally silly <coughs> and economically just inefficient. 
So the industry has a lot of problems. And what Peter saw, and what we worked on together, the company that we co-founded, was based on a very simple premise. Could we take the 150 million people in this country drinking bottled water and connect them to the billions of people in need around the world? And the experts say up to 3 billion or so are actually affected by the world water crisis. Could we link the act of consuming water to the act of helping someone in need get clean water? Could we turn water into water? And that's the simple notion behind ethos. And again, like an ethical brand, it started with mission. Let me explain how we translated mission into action. So basically, we started with a two-fold notion. Number one, we would help people to get clean water. And number two, we would educate people in this country about the world water crisis. Now, we started the business in 2002. Things have changed a great deal over the past six years. But this was an issue that certainly was not very well understood in the first part of this decade. When we were talking, people would say, is there a water problem? Doesn't seem to be one in my world. People didn't know about it. Helping children who suffer disproportionately was about making a having a global impact. Educating people was about making it locally relevant because people would understand, listen, this is how it affects you in your world on an individual basis. We aim to achieve the first part of our mission by aspiring to donate 50% of our net profits to fund water and sanitation activities around the world. That was the idea, right? 50% of our net profits would go to the cause. And then we would use our marketing to educate, to inform, and eventually to empower people to make a difference. Because the idea was really, no matter how much money we could donate, we would be much better off, you know, the old sort of, don't give a man a fish, teach him to fish. This is about literally creating an education model to, to uh, cultivate a generation of fishermen. That's what we wanted to do. Because that's really what we thought, how we could change this, right? In the big picture, we aspired to convert consumers into activists who could change the world through their everyday purchases and to change the way people thought about water and spark a grassroots movement. Because again, it's about educating people and enlisting them in the cause. No matter how many dollars we thought we could generate, we believe we'd be much better off by creating the political will to actually change this, right? So that was where we started, and that was our big picture approach. And so we looked at the bottled water industry, and you can sort of see this here. We thought about the basic private label stuff as fulfilling your body needs. At a security level, the trusted local brands like Poland Springs. How many of you actually think that water comes from Poland Springs, Maine? Okay, good. I'm glad that you don't have hands raised. It may have at one time, but now Nestle, which owns Poland Springs and Arrowhead, they evoke these local places to create a sense of trust amongst you, the consumer, even if the water hasn't come from Mount Arrowhead in California for an awfully long time. And then you have the brands that we're socialized to believe are good, like the Coke and Pepsi brands, basically. And I should say up front that Coke and Pepsi both do a lot of really good work on global water issues. But nonetheless, they've used their marketing machines to educate us that these are the waters we should be drinking. And then you have the brands that satisfy your sense of ego, right? Like a trip to the French Alps or to the Fiji Islands, as if drinking a bottle of water accessorized you in some sort of way. We strove to put ethos at the top of that pyramid. So it was about self-actualizing. It was water that wasn't just about making me satisfying my thirst, if you will, but helped me contribute to something bigger. I think what's important to note, and the reason why I included this slide, is ethical brands do just this. They help you self-actualize, but you only get the right to do that if 
you satisfy someone's surf, thirst as good as the other products if you're as widely distributed as the Coke and Pepsi products and from local sources just like the Nestle products if your bottle looks as good as a bottle of Evian or Fiji only once you've satisfied all the basics of business do you get the chance to self-actualize your consuming base. And so if you look at these other brands I mentioned earlier, right, and you can look at it across categories, it's absolutely true. Honest Tea succeeds, not because it's got organic inputs, but because its whole value chain is designed to beat Arizona Iced Tea and to beat Sobe. It's why Coke just put $40 million into the company. Tesla will succeed only if they get their distribution and their design correct, not because it's a plug-in, it's got to satisfy all the other needs of the consumers. This is a fundamental difference with the ethical brand. Now I should say, as novel as that sounds, this is how we funded our company. Because Lord knows no investors were interested in taking a, taking a shot at Ethos. They said, wait a second, you're first time entrepreneurs, it's just water, and you want to give away half the profits? So even though we couldn't find any venture capitalists to fund us, we had friends at Visa and MasterCard who were only too happy to sort of subsidize our uh, sort of fishing expedition. Um, and so that's how we started this. And again, many ethical brands start this way, where they're bootstrapped by real people who are mission-oriented. And that, that, those authentic origins are fundamental to the brand. The fact that there's two real people behind this and our names are on every single bottle. And I hear this all the time from people who tell me they walk into a Starbucks and they see my signature on a sign. Now, I'm no longer with Starbucks. Pete is still there. And his leadership is fundamental to the sustained authenticity of the brand. He is so important to Ethos. He's sort of the, the, the hub of the, whole, of the whole premise. I also would say, remember we talked about commitment and living your values? So we didn't source our water from the French Alps. We didn't source our water from the Fiji Islands. We got our water from local springs that were close to our customers to minimize the carbon footprint, to distribute the impacts. So we didn't exhaust any one water resource, to manage the environmental footprint as best we could. Wasn't perfect. Bottled water is still very imperfect. We encouraged our consumers to recycle. We looked at biodegradable packaging. We did what we could to try to manage that risk and really live the values, even though it would have been cheaper in some ways and easier in other ways to do it differently. Now, I'll tell you where this goes, and I'll explain that by sharing a story. So one morning I was in, Peter was out, I think he was in the field, and I was in the Global Operations Center of Ethos Water. It was really my son's bedroom in my house. It wasn't very impressive. <laughs> it was very humble origins. Um, and we had no money. We had no investors. Just a couple of my friends put in a, what I would describe as lunch money. Um, so we were really living uh, hand to mouth. And I got a, we had just launched in Whole Foods. And I got a call one morning, again in the command center, from a Whole Foods person who worked the floor in a, in a Whole Foods in Southern California. And I answered the phone, Ethos Water, can I help you? And uh, the fellow said, hi, you know, my name is Matt. I'm with Whole Foods. I'd love to get the ethos barrel for our store, he said to me. You know, you get a lot of, when your number, your phone number's on the back of a bottle that's sold all over the place, you get a lot of strange phone calls. <laughs> we couldn't afford anything, let alone, we couldn't afford, you know, copy paper, let alone, you know, printer paper, let alone ethos barrels. So I said, okay, thank you very much. I'll let some, I'll have someone in the marketing department call you back. And I hung up the phone. You know, since it was me and Pete, there wasn't very far for that to go. You know, you get a strange call. Half an hour later, this is on a Monday morning. I will, I will never forget it. Half an hour later, I got another call. This was so-and-so at the um, 
Whole Foods in Thousand Oaks, California. Now, for those of you who don't know, Thousand Oaks is about an hour north of the city. So it's far. It's far from where we were located. Hi, this is uh, so-and-so, let's say Matt at the Thousand Oaks Whole Foods. I'd love to get the Ethos Barrel for our store. Two calls, one hour, something's obviously up. So I'm going to get to the bottom of this. I said, well, Matt, this is uh, Jonathan. Uh, I'm the co-founder of the company. And I can tell you there, there's no, there are no Ethos Barrels. I don't know what you're talking about. He said, oh, no, 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 I've seen it. I said, oh, really, Matt? Why don't you tell me where you saw this barrel? He said, I saw it. saw a picture of it at the Whole Foods down in Manhattan Beach. Manhattan Beach, Redondo Beach. Down in South Bay, basically. Now, again, for those who don't know, this is like at least an hour and a half south of Thousand Oaks, so it's far. So I'm like, okay, well, you know what I'll do? I'll have someone from the market department get right back to you. I hang up the phone. I pick up the other line. I call the Whole Foods, Redondo Beach. Hey, this is Jonathan. What's going on with this ethos barrel? Well, it turns out that the staff at this Whole Foods had been so inspired by ethos and what we were trying to do. They took, can you guys see this here? I don't know if you can see it from that side of the room. They took a 7-Up barrel. <laughs> they went to our website and they printed out that sign. And they created that hanging sign in this display. And then at the Whole Foods at Fairfax, they built this end cap for us and created these little signs. And then at the Whole Food in Beverly Hills, California, this is what they did. <laughs> this is what engagement is all about. This is what the ethical brand can do. It can inspire a guy at Whole Foods who's making twelve or fifteen dollars an hour to take his weekend and to wire together, you know, three dozen cases and to create this display. Any of you from the retail industry or the beverage industry? I can tell you, I've shown this, this picture again and again. And people say to me, oh my gosh, how much did you pay for that? How did you get them to do that? This is what engagement's all about. This is what it means to inspire someone, right? When you're authentic and you're credible and the commitment is there, this is the kind of reaction you can elicit. And by the way, this is also what it means to understand that the staff at Whole Foods, they're your constituents, as much as the person making the purchase. You've got to think about everyone across that value chain as part of the process and give them the respect and the engagement that they deserve. You've also got to be credible. Before Peter and I produced a bottle of water, before we earned a penny, we started making donations to water-related NGOs around the world. And I should make this clear up front. There are marvelous organizations who are doing water and sanitation-related work all across the planet right now. I didn't go dig ditches in Ethiopia. I didn't go build latrines in um, Kenya. I didn't go teach hygiene classes to children in India. We worked with groups like CARE, like UNICEF, Water Partners, WaterAid. Water Action, marvelous nonprofits, and people who've dedicated their lives to trying to address these issues. But by doing that up front, making that part of our story from the get-go, not waiting until we made profits at some point down the road, we created a measure of credibility that we then shared with the consumers. So our marketing was all about being transparent and putting this information out there so people were informed about the issues. Now I should say, but then there was a day that came when this small coffee company in Seattle, some of you may have heard of it before, we started talking to them. 
Now, I should say that Starbucks was an easy or an obvious place for us to go for a couple different reasons. First of all, a cup of coffee is really just water, right? So we thought this would be a great fit because water is core to the Starbucks business. We thought it would be a great fit because this is a company that really reinvented a commodity. This is the original Starbucks still open in Pike Place Market in Seattle, opened 30 plus years ago, right? Changed the way we think about coffee forever in this country. We thought it would be a great fit because Howard Schultz, the founder and today the CEO of the company, um, is a marvelous person with tremendous vision and a real entrepreneur. We thought he would relate to our story. We thought it would work because not only does water matter in terms of Starbucks core product, but if you look at where Starbucks sources its coffee, these countries along the equator, all water scarce environments. And if you think that, I mean, it may be that Starbucks will open like a fifth shop in DuPont Circle. But in reality, that's not where Starbucks is going to grow. They're going to grow in China, in India, in Brazil, right? So water values matters across their value chain. And no global multinational had taken a position in 2003, 2004, when we started approaching them, 2003, on water. Again, some great companies like Coca-Cola. Um, who else is? Paul Faith could talk about this at great length. Some of the other companies like P&G, um, Dow. There are great companies doing tremendous work on the water issue. But back then, no one had taken a leadership position. Said, we're going to make this our own. We thought Starbucks could do that. And they have a long history of social responsibility. Starbucks employees donate hundreds of thousands of hours every year working in the local communities that they serve. It's a big part of the ethos of the company. So we said to Starbucks, it would be great to sell our water in your stores. Starbucks came back to us and said, mm, we like that. We'd like to actually own the whole thing and to buy your company. Now that wasn't what we expected, right? When you're two guys, and we had built the business up to a, a fair degree at that point. It wasn't still me and Pete in my son's bedroom, but still, um, when you start a business to donate 50% of the profits, your intention isn't to sell it to a Fortune 500. You just don't expect that's going to happen. What that actually meant for us was it gave us tremendous leverage because we weren't looking to sell out. So when they said, we'd like to buy your company, we said, well, listen, you have to scale our mission. That's what you have to do to make this work for us before we'll even consider it. And this is what the ethical brand is all about. Again, it starts from a different place. Its objectives aren't just to maximize profits. Its objectives are to maximize profits and also to generate sustainable social return. So we said, how can you help us do that? Well, our mission is dual, right? 50% profits. And we said to them, here's what you need to do. You need to donate more per bottle than we would be able to do once we reach profitability. And they agreed. Starbucks agreed. And now at least a nickel of every bottle of water sold anywhere within Starbucks or beyond Starbucks, whether it's a this size bottle or a this size bottle, at least a nickel goes to help children around the world get clean water. Now we also said then that's not enough. Because if you're going to sell this water for upwards of $2 a unit, which we figured, which has since happened, you got to do more. Because five cents is going to seem awfully paltry if you're making big profits. So Starbucks agreed right off the bat to commit at least $10 million to the cause, which meant within the first five years of the brand, the business would commit to investing at least $10 million to fund water projects around the world. To give you an idea, before we were sold, we weren't profitable. So we were making donations, but it was like carving out our revenue. Right? This is almost like a marketing expense. 
if we reach profitability, we thought we would do about two, maybe two and a quarter cents a unit. Okay? So when we were profitable, two to two and a quarter cents per bottle would go to the cause. The day we sold the company, more than double per unit was going to the cause. And profits, you know, you can manage your profits depending on quarterly performance. Five cents a unit was forever. So that was much bigger than we were able to do. And by committing to $10 million up front, we had committed about 100000 before we were acquired. So Starbucks agreed to increase our impact 100x the day after the sale. So we felt those were two pretty significant commitments from our point of view about what we could achieve on our own and what Starbucks could bring to the table. But I should say, what was more interesting was this impact. Remember I said our marketing was about education and informing people? Imagine that there are 40 million people walking through Starbucks every single week. So from our point of view, even if we could do $10 million, $100 million in five years, this problem will cost maybe upwards of $100 billion to solve. So if we could reach 40 million people a week, if I could get 1% of those people to buy a bottle of water, Imagine if I could sell 400,000 bottles a week, and of those people, consumers, if I could just get 1% to actually read the label and go, hmm, I'm going to tell a friend. I'm going to go to the website. I'm going to sign an online petition. Maybe I'm inspired to make a donation. Maybe I'm inspired to go get involved with a great nonprofit, like, you know, Living Water. Or maybe, just maybe, I'm going to start my own social venture. Imagine if we could create and enlist 4,000 activated and energized and inspired people every week. Now that's how you create a movement. That's how you solve the problem. So it's not about the money. Ethical brands aren't just about, again, more profits. They're about enlisting people in a cause and using market forces to drive change. That's what we endeavored to do. I had the great pleasure and privilege to go to Pittsburgh about a year ago, and I met a kid who started something just like Ethos Water, bottled water, donating 10 cents a unit, actually, to fund water programs, in part inspired by Ethos. There are lots of other, I hope, I believe, social entrepreneurs out there who follow this lead and create their own companies. And that's why I have great optimism. So quickly, I'll just tell you today, the product's now sold in over 6,000 Starbucks. And providing water to over 400,000 people, roughly 400,000 people, in Africa, in Asia, and Latin America, through, I said earlier, great nonprofit partners. And right now, via a joint venture with PepsiCo, they're now distributing this to an additional 50,000 retail locations, which means our ability to reach more people, drive more money, create more awareness has gone up dramatically, pretty much 10x from where we were with Starbucks alone. I predict, and you can write this one down, and you can make this in Seven Revolutions Part Two, you'll see, Ethos will be among the biggest premium water brands within the next five years. Evian, Fiji, Voss, all these other fancy brands are going to have a run for their money. Because ultimately, I don't care if you're from Fjord in Norway or Fiji Islands, whatever, this brand premise is far more engaging and enduring Enlisting people in your cause is a lot better than having some fancy fjord that produces your water. Now, it's also not just about the water. Like I said, it's about a movement. And that's really what gets me excited. 
So in 2003, we did our first event on World Water Day. So World Water Day is a day that's really gotten some traction the last few years. For a long time, nobody even knew it existed. Sort of like the red-headed stepchild to Earth Day. We thought we could use this day as a way to galvanize the public and a way to engage our consumers. So here in Washington, I think Mark was there. We did an event at the National Press Club. And we announced, we're Ethos. This is World Water Day. And folks from WaterAid and Water Partners and Living Water and a few other groups came out. Maybe there were 100 people. No press, no mention. Nobody really knew what happened. We had a little sign you know, outside the room at the NPC. Well, last year on World Water Day, with the help of Starbucks, more than 10,000 people got engaged. About half of them walked for water. Remember I mentioned that walk that these women in Africa often take? Thousands of people across 26 cities in North America came out on World Water Day on March the 22nd and walked, not to raise money, just to raise awareness. Rotary joined us, other nonprofits joined us, s classes and school children joined, church churches and their congregations joined, people from all walks of life, life joined. It's happening again this year, and you can check it out for yourselves at worldwaterday.net. You can sign up, and if there's not a walk taking place in your city, you can sign up for a virtual walk for water to show your commitment to the cause. So this is what gets me excited, because again, no matter how many bottles of water we sell, that won't solve the problem. It's only by widening the circle of people who understand the issue that we can really drive meaningful change. So this is what happens. Remember I mentioned Bottled Ethos will be one of the fastest growing ethical brands. It'll compete with Evian and Fiji. Big corporations have four options as they look at the threat of these ethical brands. They can ignore them, and they risk losing consumer interest in seeding market share. Evian's a great case in point. They can try to imitate them, right? Try to duplicate the ethical brand, but it won't work if it's not authentic. And it'll likely cost them a lot of money and waste a lot of time. They can insource them. They can acquire these brands, which Starbucks did. But you pay a very high price for those brands because the multiples they get are far beyond the rest of the category. The real opportunity is for corporations to intrapreneur, to incubate these brands, to unleash the talent and the energy of their own people and set them against this, just like we saw those Whole Foods people did for us. This is the opportunity awaiting the multinationals and the larger companies. Ethical brands don't have to happen in your son's bedroom, but they have to be infused with the traits that I described earlier. Mission, authenticity, commitment, transparency, and engagement. Lastly, I just want to touch on, so this is my talk about ethos and about the case study of ethical brands. I'll just close on noting, if anyone is interested, we can talk about it, prize philanthropy. So Eric is on the advisory board of this prize that I've been developing at the XPRIZE Foundation, which I'm quite pleased to say the Skoll Foundation and Ram Sriram's personal foundation, he's a technology investor, have both funded, which is great. I don't know if you guys are familiar with prize philanthropy or not. Some of you may remember that Charles Lindbergh flew across the Atlantic in pursuit of a prize. Prizes, financial rewards, have often been used to induce interesting change in otherwise stayed or stuck markets. In 1996, the X Prize was awarded for the first privately funded team to get a vehicle 100 kilometers in altitude to reach suborbital spaceflight. Peter Diamandis, who founded the X Prize Foundation, believed that NASA was not very interesting and hadn't really done a lot of innovation in 20 some odd years. 
He put a $10 million purse together that inspired teams from all over the world. $10 million purse. It actually ended up driving over $100 million worth of research and development where teams put money in and investors supported those teams to try to win this $10 million prize. And it spawned this whole, this whole industry of space travel, personal space travel, or sort of an evolution of the aviation space. I'm not an expert in that, but what I can tell you is I've been leading an effort at the XPRIZE over the last year to think about could we use market forces and use technology models to change the way we think about global development, to use prize philanthropy to incent different approaches to trying to drive change at the base of the pyramid. This is a conversation for probably another lecture. But I thought I'd touch on it here, and again, I'm pleased to note that with the support of Skoll and Sriram, we're going to take this forward in some interesting ways. I'll conclude by saying I'm no longer at Ethos. I should make this clear. I'm no longer at Starbucks. I left. I teach now at UCLA, and I'm leading a new interesting little media company called Good. And as if XPRIZE weren't enough, Good will be made when I come back and talk about next year. So thank you very much for your time. Hope I answer some questions. Great. For those of you who want to learn about good, you can go to goodinc.com. It's a magazine. It's a website. It's live events. It's about using media to push the world forward. Right? It's about creating an ethical brand in media, the likes of which Ethos did in water, hopefully with similar results. Great. Jonathan, thank you very much. You've raised so many interesting points. I was having trouble writing fast enough. Um, I'd like to give you a multiple choice in the beginning here. I'll oh seize a, a tyranny of the chair. <laughs> uh, three questions that pop to mind right away. Uh -huh. What are the limits of the economy of integrity? You've uh -huh. talked about a lot of the opportunity. What uh -huh. are the big constraints that we need to be thinking about? Choice number two. Um, what, what should we do in terms of thinking across social layers of social organization? You know, whether it's a corporation like Starbucks or Ethos, or whether it's a government or uh, a pure NGO or an academic institution. And choice number three is um, when we think about this with respect to all the big global issues, like right. the ones that you've been focusing on in water, right. How do we handle this in connection with this broader smart power thinking? Mm -hmm. How do we mm -hmm. deal with the various instruments? Well, that's a good point, because this lecture is part of the smart power series. And I guess I'd kind of be inclined to fuse together the second and third questions. Because okay. I do think we live in a time of great change, which is accelerated by technology and enabled by those other trends that I mentioned. And so the kind of the, the idea that a company could simply generate focus on generating its own profits and not think about the broader externalities, I believe, is that me? Is that feedback now? I hope not. I believe that that time has passed. I think corporations live in an interconnected environment. So thinking about strategic alliances and thinking about development as part of their charge. Listen, Milton Friedman might not like this, but externalities matter. Even those that we don't see and can't directly measure in the immediate present where we live, in an environment of diminishing resources. And by the way, I'm a big believer in technology. I think you probably got that point from my discussion of XPRIZE. But there are limits. There are limits. There's only so much water 
there's only so much air. There's only so much land. And so I think that thinking differently about the role of the corporation, thinking differently about the role of um, nonprofit actors, and building those relationships is, one might say, an example of smart power, and it's the right approach. I would also say this. You know, there's a greater, uh, there's a legacy of environmentalism in Europe, for sure, and in Japan, where they've been much more attuned to these issues because of space constraints and other issues for a long time and resource constraints. Um, and we're seeing the damage that can be wrought in places like China and India where there's very little attention to this. It is America that where you find these ethical brands really prospering and flourishing and beginning to propagate. So we are doing something here, fusing the private sector and public space in a way that's quite different than other uh, regions. And maybe that's because of our culture, entrepreneurialism. I'm not sure exactly why. But there's something afoot here that simply isn't present in these other places. There are lots of examples. There's a great financial institution in the Netherlands called Triodos doing innovative work. There's an interesting ethical apparel company in Japan called Tree People. There's a great beverage company called Innocent Drinks in the UK. There are examples here and there. But ethical brands are a real phenomenon here. And I think they're a great example of American smart power when well applied can have tremendous positive effects around the world. We have a number of uh, people here. I don't even know where to begin, but uh, Whitney, why don't you start us off with a question? Can you uh, have people say their name? Yes. Would you please uh, give your name? Um, take yep. me off the hook, would you, Whitney? <laughs> and your, uh, your organi the organization you represent. Uh, absolutely. My name is Whitney Schneidman, and um, I head up Schneidman Associates International, and I advise companies who are investing in Africa. And I've been working in Africa 30, 35 years and doing a a lot of corporate social responsibility work there with oil companies, mining companies, and others. So I'd, I'd first like to say that your um, presentation underscores my belief that there should be one last or a new Millennium Development Goal, and that mm -hmm. should go for social entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. Because I think it's vital that you know the markets and entrepreneurs be seen for what they can be, and that is a force for economic development. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, but I'd like to make an observation and get your reaction to it because as you were making your presentation, what I was thinking, what, what I was looking for was, okay, how many people in the developing world are really being touched by this? Mm -hmm. And the one figure that you put up is that you're providing water to 400,000 people mm -hmm. worldwide. And when I juxtapose that figure to Paul Collier's figure mm -hmm. of the bottom billion, mm -hmm. I'm thinking, okay, you know, what's the impact here? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a big impact if these 400,000 people are in a community outside Lusaka mm -hmm. and you've developed a delivery mechanism, mm -hmm. maybe the impact's a lot less if this is spread over 20 or 30 countries. So, you know, my final point here is that looking at your uh, five criteria, I mm -hmm. guess the one that I'm looking for is, mm -hmm. is the delivery criteria. Mm -hmm. What's your delivery mechanism? Mm -hmm. How many people are you mm -hmm. touching? Mm -hmm. And how do we know that? Mm -hmm. So, great, great question. So, um, Couple thoughts. So first of all, I teach a class. I developed it and teach this class at the Anderson School on social entrepreneurship. I hope the time comes we no longer have that term. I hope the time will be here when all entrepreneurs, again, are thinking in a more holistic sense and creating enterprises that generate value, both financial value and social value. Right? So I want to say that up front because I think it's a term that's fraught with definitions. And are you, am I a social entrepreneur creating a company in Santa Monica versus someone like Muhammad Yunus or? in a developing environment. I hope there comes a time when everyone, all entrepreneurs, are thinking this way. 
number one. Number two, I think it's fair to say 400,000 people, what is that? Well, 400, it's that old, I won't get the story straight, but about the pebbles, the grains of sand on the beach, right? You know this, this story? Somebody knows the story yeah. about tossing the, the shells. And to that shell, it's the whole world that gets tossed. I'm totally butchering the story. Some of you will know what I'm talking Somebody. about. But it's fair to say, Whitney, that what does it mean when you're only helping 400,000 people when there's a billion two in desperate need? But to those 400,000 people, it's the world over. So I think what I would also say is that from an investment point of view, we endeavor to work with organizations that we're doing what we describe as integrated and sustained water projects. So integrated meant we weren't just donating or driving dollars to do water. We would look to drive dollars where, let's say, as an example, a project we did in Ethiopia where it was uh, Oxfam was building health clinics. For every dollar we donated, they were putting a dollar toward health and the local government was donating $2 to build roads and infrastructure. It was an integrated model, right? So we knew we were having more impact than just a water source, per se. We were doing it in a more holistic way. We also tried to do sustainable projects. So there was often some economic component. So we knew after the dollars were done and the project was built, it would be sustained and scaled, hopefully, over time. And we endeavored to work with groups like Kickstart would be an example, um, which is an interesting nonprofit working in Sub-Saharan Africa, which is trying to do what you're describing creating a model that's quite scalable and impacts a lot of people. And then thirdly, we try to do water projects. Excuse me, water programs, not projects. Projects often implies, and many of you are development experts, so you can correct me if you disagree, but projects often implies hardware, right? We're building something. But water isn't a technology problem. It's a systems problem. Technology matters. But changing mindsets and educating people about germ theory and teaching them about how they, the impacts it has on their health and the health of their children. The software is as important as the hardware. So I don't think we, there's a lot of things we could have done better. But I think the dollars that we're driving to integrate in sustainable water programs are a step in the right direction. Right here, please. Sorry, can you look around? Yeah. Would you please identify yourself? Sure. Hi, my name is Carla Ballard, and I just want to thank you so much, Jonathan. Um, I, my company is Alliance Card, uh, our cash value card. We represent a new dual currency transaction that will be uh, coming out very soon, which actually bridges the core economy with the economic economy, uh -huh. Main Street. Uh -huh. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the idea of sustaining, um, when you're looking at nonprofits uh -huh. and the amount of time that individuals put into uh, either um, supporting communities or individuals. When you look at how we're going to fund those efforts, which obviously have a direct impact on mm -hmm. the economy, mm -hmm. what are some of your thoughts in terms of long-term solutions in that area? Well, I think that there'll, listen, I have great respect uh, for people who work in the nonprofit space and the public service in general. Um, I have a great, I'm very grateful having gotten to know a lot of people from my time here in the, in the government. And my wife has worked in nonprofits for years. Um, I think some nonprofits will always require grant-based funding. They'll always have to go out to supporters, foundations, governments, individuals to drive money to them. But I think it's encouraging to see more and more nonprofits looking to develop earned income strategies, thinking about how they can create sustained sources of revenue that can allow them over time to get away from the vagaries of like the regular grant cycle and find ways they can create value and receive value through product, through services, through other programs. So I think that's an, I'm not an expert in nonprofit, 
And I think that's an encouraging development. You know, Jonathan, it strikes me that the, the barriers between these layers of social organization are fading so mm -hmm. quickly. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, I ran into somebody the other day and said, oh, I'm, I represent a gongo. And I said, oh, what? Mm -hmm. A gongo, government organized NGO. Oh. You know, in the end, in the end wow, you know, there are all these permutations that are arising now with different functions. Uh -huh. and uh -huh. I think that that allows for such innovation on the nature of the, the, what you described mm -hmm. here. Sir, you're being very patient. In the front, please. I'm Raghubirgal from India Globe in Asia today. The question is that how big is the you think, clean water problem in India and also as far as clean water problem around the globe is concerned, what the United Nations or the World Banks are doing and the big corporations like uh, Gate Foundation and all that, have you reached them? That's a, that's a great question, a fair question, and not one that I'm the most able to answer. I'll say quickly that uh, if you look at the numbers, the water problem is definitely concentrated in Sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia. Um, it has different, there are different aspects of the problem in each region. It's more of an urban problem, for example, in South Asia versus Africa, where it's more concentrated in the rural areas. Um, but with that said, there are a lot of organizations doing marvelous work to try to address the issue. The Gates Foundation is now focusing on water in a way that's very interesting, very progressive. The World Bank, although one can maybe contest the strategy, has been a priority of theirs for some time. And there are lots of marvelous NGOs working on these issues. Water Partners is one that I would mention. Water, you can find them at water.org. WaterAid is another one that I mentioned earlier. You can find them at wateraid.org. These groups are doing fantastic work. But if you want to know more about organizations, government, sort of these international institutions looking at water, I'm going to take the liberty to point out Paul Fate, who's the executive director of the Global Water Challenge, who's in the back of the room. And Ambassador Babbitt, who led a CSIS study on the water issue, who's sitting in this side of the room. These are the real experts, not me. Yes, ma'am, in the back. Thank you. No, right there. Yeah. Thanks. I'm Samantha Gross. I'm with Cambridge, Cambridge Energy Research Associates. And my question regards the opposing forces of growth versus authenticity mm -hmm. in ethical companies. Mm -hmm. On the one hand, you want to grow. You want to reach as many people as possible with your message. Mm -hmm. But the flip side of that is I believe that consumers believe that large companies lack authenticity. Mm -hmm. Starbucks is a good example. Mm -hmm. I think there's a certain backlash against companies just because they're large, even mm -hmm. though Starbucks does a lot of good things. Mm -hmm. So as an ethical company grows, how does it man maintain its authenticity, connection, and avoid the cynicism connected with large enterprises? Mm -hmm. So Samantha, that's a great question. That's kind of the $64,000 question. Because I don't know that there's any one answer to it, right? I don't think there's a silver bullet for how you do that. But one strategy that I would suggest for keeping it authentic and real, even at a larger multinational corporation, did I just say keeping it real, would be uh, <laughs> to really engage and involve the, uh, the audience, to really engage and involve the community of consumers, and to actually Seed, if you will. So the typical P&G Clorox model of brand management is one brand manager at the middle, and that person guides the brand. But in the new reality, I think that brand manager almost needs to be to think about not only him or herself at the at the hub, but bring the community into that hub as well, and allow the community to help shape and guide it. And when you bring in the almost like a wiki-esque model, 
or crowds for fun. And when you bring in the community and you listen to them, not in a market research poll-driven way, you actually give them the, the power to help guide the brand, that's very, 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 very effective. So the ethos example would be, as again, Peter is still there. He is really the leader pushing this thing forward now. But World Water Day is a way to get thousands and thousands of people involved in the brand. And I've seen MySpace pages, and I've seen other social networking tools applied to it in ways that we never could have imagined. So by involving the public, by engaging the consumers and allowing them to participate, it sort of widens the circle of thinking. It's very untraditional. Most multinational corporations know only top-down sort of control models of management. But more bottoms up, something that's a little bit more uh, participatory, I think that's the new model going forward. Yes, please, right here in the front. Oh, and then Ambassador, next. Hi, I'm Mark Stuckert with the Overseas Private Investment Corporation, OPIC, and we funded uh, through loans, uh, Living Water in Kenya, mm -hmm. and we've also done a couple hundred million dollar desalinization plant in Algeria. Mm -hmm. And a lot of what you said today is focused on what's happening in the U.S., mm -hmm. but how do we fund companies, projects, and we have to have a U.S. investor, we're not a grant-making organization. Right. How does OPEC uh, play a much bigger role, perhaps, in helping develop water systems. In a past life, I financed literally hundreds of municipal water systems in the United States. Um, and uh, there are two different models. One is government-owned corporations that develop water, and that's the model we have for the most part in the U.S., mm -hmm. with some exceptions like Hackensack Water. Mm -hmm. Overseas, from in Europe, we've had Leonet de O, the great water company in France, and, and yeah. others. But how do you, how do we find, I mean, we've done a lot with uh, microfinance institutions, but to me it seems how do you get credit to the local communities so that they can invest the money in pipes, pumps, and, and the money is not big, as just as you're pointing yeah. out, yeah. but how do we get enough engineering and enough, a little bit of investment capital so that they can build their own water systems? Very difficult question. It's a good question. I know the folks from the private sector, a place like Texas Pacific Group and other large companies, have been looking at this issue for a long time and struggling with it because they've had a hard time making these projects really profitable and making them work. Um, I don't know that I have the answer to that question. But I do think that focusing on public infrastructure is fundamental to the long-term delivery. I mean, it's someone asked the question over here. It's more effective delivery of services is fundamental to sort of course correcting and driving water and sanitation to those in need. I wish I knew the answer to how we could do it more effectively. Jonathan, this falls in the area of, um, of uh, advertising, uh, but uh, CSIS is engaged in an effort now thinking through on how we might make some concrete recommendations on how to streamline U.S. international water policy with the interest that come up. And um, among the number of representatives of that broader effort are in this room. I'm, uh, I, I'd like to acknowledge gratefully. Uh, the bottom line is that uh, I think our view is that, more generally speaking, a lot can be done to find more integrated scale approaches internationally now across different government agencies and offices. And uh, it may be that uh, reorganizing perhaps in new and different ways in order mm -hmm. to accommodate some of the issues that Jonathan has raised here might be helpful when mm -hmm. we're looking for a greater return on investment uh, internationally. And, you know, as Jonathan and I were talking uh, before coming in here, what a wonderful feature of a broader policy with respect to application of smart power 
than to have water as a central component. And then also to think through the complex linkages that exist between water on the one hand and food and energy on the other. I mean, it would be a great way for this country to demonstrate broader leadership in a tremendously complex environment. Ambassador, please. Yeah, I think I would just say to that, oh, I would sorry. love to see in a new, just in a new administration, water, and already the Congress has done some great work to prioritize water on its agenda. And I think some folks in this room were involved in the passage of, the, of that legislation to prioritize water as part of our US foreign policy. Wouldn't it be marvelous to see at the White House, and I'm not talking about some lone cabinet secretary who talks about water and then gets shut down by the White House, as happened in the first Bush administration. And we should give credit to Secretary O'Neill for the work that he attempted to do in this area. Um, but if the new president came in and said, water is an issue that I'm going to prioritize. Water is an issue. I'm going to think about how I can drive American talent and ingenuity to help alleviate the suffering of so many people. This would put us right on the right side of an issue of universal appeal, particularly to the communities that are you know, most impoverished around the world. Ambassador Babbitt. Um, my name is Hattie Babbitt. I'm on the board of WRI. And my question is a kind of, there are two issues that kind of stem from the climate change set of issues. I think climate change is the defining issue of our times. Mm -hmm. And I, although you're not directly involved with ethos anymore, I would say that your local ethos is local sourcing of water is huge. I mean, in my eyes, it's nearly criminal to use jet fuel to bring water from France or from Fiji. I mean, yeah, how yeah. can that, how can we drink that? Yeah. Uh, the second issue related to your, what you're doing now is I wonder if you could talk about climate change in terms of the issues of the economy of integrity and some examples um, of how that all fits together. I mean, certainly, the, certainly climate change will have the worst effect in terms of water on sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia. So companies that are dealing with lowering their carbon footprint uh, are important to at the very local ish level as well as the global level. Yeah, I, I think those are great points. I think the first point, you know, interesting, I just saw the new Fiji promotion, which is every bottle or every drop is green kind of position themselves on the right side of this issue when it is absolutely wrong, indisputably, unambiguously wrong. Listen, again, I think ethos, um, Peter and I sort of designed the brand and there were problems with it, imperfections with it, but we were trying to do what we could. Still not perfect, just trying to do what we could. Um, if you're going to drink bottled water, and I think it's a choice that in my house we don't make, we, we drink tap water in my house. We have a sink under, we have a filter under the sink, and we drink tap water. We did before ethos. We did when I had cases of water all over the house, and we do today. So I just, I'll put that out there. Um, and I would also say that if you're going to, so if you're going to drink bottled water, at least ethos is an ethical choice, or at the most ethical you might be able to find. Now, I agree with you that I think climate change is the defining issue of this generation. I think climate change and the hydrological cycle are intimately tied together. Make no mistake, water may seem like an issue right now in sub-Saharan Africa or South Asia. But if we see ocean levels rise and we see the salination of local low-lying aquifers in coastal parts of North America, it's going to be an issue here. It already is in places like Atlanta or the American Southwest where I live in Los Angeles. So it's actually not that far away. Um, 
I'm not sure if I really answered your question, but I think they're great points that it's a major issue and it will continue to be a major issue. And we can't think that we're divorced from it or far from it. I actually think it's quite close to home. Mitzi, please. Jonathan, I really loved what you had to say because you think holistically. My con I run an energy seminar series funded by defense, but I now have virtually all the other parts of government worrying about energy sort of joining in with us. I've been building a network, a social network here in Washington. What troubles me is our educational system, which is designed for one-off solutions. Here's the problem, here's the answer. Mm -hmm. Here's the question, there's the answer. We don't have an educational system that even asks what the right question is. Mm -hmm. And I know this may be offensive to some people in this city, but I've spent most of my adult life living with lawyers. All of a sudden it dawned on me, Washington's run by lawyers. And they're interested in one-off solutions because they need to solve an immediate problem for their client. Mm -hmm. And so my question is, how do we get thinking which says context, cause, choices, and consequences? Because every choice you make sets up the conditions for the next problem. And if you don't think about that, right. we get into a lot of trouble that way. Well, I don't think I have the answer to how we <laughs> rework the whole system. But, but you know, to be honest, I would, you know, Ambassador Babbitt mentioned on the board of the World Resources Institute. That's a great example of an organization that Jonathan Lash, early on, the fellow who runs it, saw that linkage between climate change and environment and global development, uplifting people from poverty. And the work they've done on the base of the pyramid is informed by the work they're doing on climate change. So I think there are more and more organizations which are thinking sort of in a smart power way, you know, across typical segments of issues and creating alliances. I agree. I agree. The point, the point was she'd like to get in elementary school, for those of you who didn't hear. Mark, please. Well, um, thank you, Eric. You uh, first, I want to also thank, uh, I'm Mark Winter. I'm on the board of Living Water International and the Millennium Water Alliance. And I just want to first thank my friendly banker from OPIC, who provided the funds to buy, purchase two drill bits uh, for use over in Kenya. Second, Jonathan, I'm going to put a little color in your cheeks, uh, and I want to want to thank you. And in my mind, you're the ultimate water buff. You speak with uh, passion, and your presentation is very compelling. And I just want to go back some four and a half years uh, in the midst of the formation of the Millennium Water Alliance. And we listened to Jonathan. Jonathan came to New York and spoke to our, our group. And it was a very loose-knit group uh, in those days. And he stressed the, the efficiencies needed. And as they mentioned in the slide presentation, the transparency. And what we saw, and we, meaning some of the members, include the, the CARES that Jonathan has, has worked with, World Vision, Aftercare, Living Water, Catholic Relief Services, some of the larger NGOs that either have a water-specific goal or have a, a water expertise subset. Uh, we were trying to get ourselves organized because when you would go to the Kenyas and the Ethiopias, you'd see the cares down that dirty, bumpy road, and you'd see World Vision over here and Living Water here. So we said, why don't we adopt a business model, much along what you were addressing us about, John? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we have. 
and we have created certain efficiencies, I believe, now in the NGO community. These are principally implementers, mm -hmm. and we're, we're now approaching our fifth year, and Jonathan, I just want to thank you. Your, your words of wisdom we listened to, and now we have created this Millennium Water Alliance, and we're up to 12 members now of the alliance. We appreciate your words of encouragement, so thank you. It, it is uh, gracious and utterly undeserving to give me any credit whatsoever. But uh, <laughs> what I would just say is that uh, the success that Peter and I had with Ethos, I think we stood on the shoulders of people like Ben Cohen and Gary Hirschberg and Anita Roddick and pioneers of social responsible business. And those people are from Ben and Jerry's and Stonyfield Farms and the Body Shop. But we also really stood on the shoulders of people like Malcolm and the folks behind the Millennium Water Alliance and so many people who are working so hard on these water and sanitation issues. The only reason we got as far as we did is we tried to do the best that we could in terms of listening. And I think like I still have so much to learn but uh, the success we had was a direct result of the input we got from people like you. So it's my chance to thank you for all the, those contributions and support. Why don't we take two more in the middle here, sure. and then we'll let uh, Jonathan recover a little bit. Hi, I'm Christina. I actually am from Global Entrepreneurship Week. And I was just wondering What's if that? From Global Entrepreneurship Week. What is that? Um, we're in non that our mission of the week is to kind of spread the spirit of entrepreneurship worldwide. And so we engage a lot of entrepreneurs. And I think we're at 60 countries worldwide Ooh, for great. one week in the middle of December. And if you want to get involved, we're always looking for investors. But that was not actually my question. Um, I was just wondering if you have one piece of advice that you could give to our um, budding entrepreneurs who are looking to start social brands. I mean, I, this is a great business model, and I'm going to blog about it and do all those things. But if you have just one piece of advice that you could give them, what would you do? Hmm. It was hard when you're asked to say something that's being cogent, obviously. Being cogent is not one of my uh, hallmarks. I think, uh, you know, at the risk of sounding cliche, I would say just do it. I mean, I think just do it means don't abide in the conventions of like freemism where again you only can think about the bottom line and the purpose of the corporation is only to generate profits. I think the you know we're all dead in the in the long run, right? So I think you're much better off in the short run thinking in a much more holistic way and just and again not abiding in the conventions that they teach you in business school, right? Not listening to the uh, the, the sort of classic constraints on what you think the company can do. The company can do a ton company can do a ton and it can be a real agent of change beyond just the people you employ and the customers that you serve. So I would think in those, I would think across boundaries. I really would and across disciplines and just do it. Did you all notice that he looked at me when he said we're dead in the long run? <laughs> I'm trying not to personalize that. <laughs> we had one more, one last question please. You choose. You can ask them both. Why don't you just right, we'll answer them both. Or we can ask them both and let Jonathan. Uh, Jonathan, thank you very much for addressing the topic of creating a movement. Definitely see that happening in the 20 and 30-year-old 30, 30 generations. In fact, on my return from working with Living Water um, in East Africa, met with some people here in D.C. and we kicked off this thing called the Last Well Movement, thelastwell.com. It will address the need to, to solve the water crisis and 
the water crisis in one board in one country, border to border, instead of a global approach. Mm -hmm. I'm interested in engaging the 40s, 50s, 60s um, piece of that demographic of our nation. Um, and man, 70s as well. <laughs> the, the wiser, the wiser generation. The Ethos worst. Water does a great job of engaging the youth, and, and you're doing a great job presenting here in these kind of forums. Just you know, curious to know how you might approach the other generation. Well, I, yeah, I think they're here. So uh, I don't think bottled water is an age, you know, based uh, product. I think people who are a little older may be a little more skeptical of it than young kids who were raised on it. But uh, it's an issue that knows no, that affects everyone. So I think it's something we need to try to, uh, you know, share with everyone, regardless of where they are in terms of their age or education or economic bracket. So I'll make a brief. Uh, Josh Weisberg from the Aspen Institute. Um, and I wanted to, I'm a little curious about the question or the figure you oh. threw out, the $25, I think, per, per yeah. person to provide yeah. clean water. Yeah. Um, who pays that? And sort of, I want to juxtapose two ideas. So on the one hand, you said you hope that eventually companies don't think of social entrepreneurs at all, that it's integrated into the way that people do business. Um, on the other side, uh, it's, we've talked about water not being a, a, a project, an infrastructure that you build, but it's a, it's a service, something that needs to be integrated into the way that people think about, um, sort of a sustainable approach that's uh, not, not a, a piece of infrastructure that gets built. So who, um, if we were to fund that $25 for everybody who needs water, would that actually uh, solve the problem? Um, who pays that $25 and, and kind of could you talk a little bit about, about the sustainability of that? Well, I think, first of all, um, I think, Ambassador Babbitt, it was, it was an Aspen study that you shared, not a CFS study, yes. so I'll correct that. Uh, it's a great question. It's a complicated question. Um, I think water is an economic good, so it has to be paid for. We can't have, we, like we pay for our water today. I pay a water bill every month. Um, it's not so easy to say that one person will pay that $25, but that's a lifetime supply. So we think about if there was infrastructure built, some of that may be by governments, and where governments fail, sometimes the private sector may step up and privatize, and there may be sort of um, what you might call public-private partnerships that actually are put in place to deliver these services. It's not $25 at once. It may be amortized at the user level, right, over a long period of time. But ultimately, the people who get the water will have to pay for it in some way, shape, or form. Now, again, governments may help to subsidize that. The private sector may be involved. But it does have to be paid for. There is a burgeoning debate in the water community whether or not water is a human right. And I'm not going to – there are people in this room who may have opinions about that. I'm not going to broach that issue. But I do think it is an issue um, that does come down in part to economics, and it does need to be dealt with in that way, at least in part in that way. Both. And I know that there are remaining questions. I presume people will be asking them as you go out. But let me uh, let me conclude uh, first of all by thanking you. Really, you've uh, you've covered a lot of territory. A lot you've responded to a lot of interesting questions. We're beholden to you uh, for a lot of interesting new thinking. When when you uh, flashed a couple of those screens up, and when you talked about the economics of integrity, mm -hmm. you talked about a number of factors: mission authenticity, transparency, commitment, and engagement. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that you've shown every one of those in terms of your presentation here today. And I think that really uh, you uh, help inspire us as we think about 
uh, how to move forward in a very complex, very dynamic environment. And uh, en passant, you mentioned twice that you might want to come back to cover the issue of the good company and also to talk perhaps a little more about the XPRIZE. I very much hope that we can bring you back to do just that. I'd be flattered. Thank you very much.